is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Today, we're starting a brand new series in Colossians. And it's my privilege to start off the first part of it. So if you'd like to be turning to Colossians, and I just want to say a big thank you to Matt, because it's the first time Matt has ever done the words. He walked in here today and the words person was missing. Matt grabbed the laptop, unfamiliar as he was with the workings of said laptop, and he's performed a wonderful job up here. And he's even done this for me. So thank you, Matt. You get the job. He didn't realise he was on trial for the job. Exactly. So we're starting this series in Colossians over the next six or seven weeks. Um, And as I said, I've got the privilege of of kicking it off, really. So we're looking at Colossians verses 1 to 8 as that's up in the background. Now, we wouldn't normally do this, actually, but very often we will talk about visiting speakers coming to the church and we'll give them the big up, really, and saying, oh, you really need to be here to listen to this. Can I encourage you greatly to be here next week when my lovely brother Kevin Gill is speaking? Okay. Now, we've given Kevin this passage on the supremacy of Christ. Okay. And if you match Kevin's passion for the gospel with the supremacy of Christ together, we have got one great talk next week. So please don't miss that. I believe it's, this is not to put pressure on Kevin, but I believe it's a significant a significant day in the life of this church, what Kevin will bring. So, no pressure, Kev, okay? Good man. See, he doesn't feel under pressure, he just takes it in his stride, wonderful. Now, I am not a gifted speaker, I'm nowhere near like Kevin is, basically, but, and, and I, if I'm totally honest with you, I think I've wrestled a bit with this passage I'm going to bring today. Uh, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with God over anything. God always wins, believe you me, he always comes out on top, and It's like a tag team when you wrestle with God. Sometimes you think, well, I'm getting okay somewhere. And then God tags Jesus and he comes into the ring and you think, well, I might as well throw in the towel now, really. So I've wrestled a little bit. And I think it's because a couple of things, really. Uh, The the topic about I'm going to speak on is something that, although it's very familiar to me, I just believe that God's given me a different uh, view of it. And also, the other thing is, I feel a bit inadequate, really, if I'm totally honest with you. I haven't got any biblical training. I haven't been to college in any sort. So... What I bring today is what I believe God's put on my heart for us as a church, so bear with me as I go through that. So, I want to put the context of this letter to the Colossians in in context of history, really. So, um, next slide, please, Matt. He's good. And the first click. Right, okay. So, this we want to consider the historical background to this letter. So, when Kev and Graham bring it in future weeks, we know how to place what's happening here. So, who wrote it? Well, it was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was co-written by Timothy, his disciple. Okay, and you need to remember this, that they were both in prison at this time. Some scholars say they were in Rome in prison. Some say they were in Ephesus in prison. The fact of where it was that they were in prison isn't, isn't the issue here. The fact that they were in prison is. So they were both doing porridge, as far as we're concerned, okay? Both down in the slammer. That's where they find themselves when they wrote this letter. Okay, next click, please, Matt. When was it written? It was written in AD 62, just after the end of the book of Acts finishes, and written at the same time as the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Laodicean church, which was lost, and the letter to Philemon, which we'll come on to a little bit later. Next, please, Matt. 
Who was it written to? Well, it was obviously written to the church in Colossae, which was one of two New Testament churches, Rome being the other one, that Paul never visited. So Paul's writing from a distance here, having never visited the folk. So it's almost like Jeremy Simpkins never comes to this church who looks after Christ Central, who never comes to this church but writes from a distance about us as a congregation. Um, The church is more likely to be implanted there by Epaphras, who we'll come on to later, who was also imprisoned after going to see Paul in prison. So the moral of the story is never go to see Paul in prison because you end up in there with him. Okay, now commentators would argue that the church met in Philemon's house and numbered in the hundreds. The location was in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. So let's have a look at that for a second. So um, not the greatest clarity there, but with my little pointer up there, we can pick out beep, 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 Colossi, okay? So that's where it is there. Laodicea there, Ephesus on the coast here. Um, And here, Derby. Yeah, okay, Derby's up here already, see? It might finish with an E, but it's pretty much the same thing. And then just to the southwest, you'll see Burton-upon-Tigris, okay? That's the centre in Asia Minor of the brewing and marmite industry, So that's just down there on the coast. So that's where the church was. So you can see, and then this coast up here, down here, unfortunately, that's the coastline where we get all these tragic stories of of people trying to migrate to Europe. They're all coming across in boats across to the Greek islands. So tragedy there as well, even in this day. So Colossae was a Roman town, 100 miles from Ephesus, and predominantly Gentile, but with a Jewish community. So the next picture map. Okay, so this is what it looks like today. This is where that's what the town of Colossi looks like today. And apparently there was a major earthquake in that part of the world many years ago, and the whole city, and the next one map please, was completely buried. So about eight years ago, apparently a Australian uh, archaeological company wanted to excavate this site, but the Turkish government wouldn't allow them to do it. So it still stands as you see it here now, just a flat piece of land really with the city underneath it. So when they do get to excavate that, I wonder what they're going to find. Okay, next slide please, Matt. What's it all about? What is this letter to the Colossian church all about? Well, it's all about Jesus. It is Jesus-centred right through it. So as Graham and Kev bring up the things over the next weeks, we're going to find Jesus right in the centre of it, which is wonderful. Why was it written? Twofold, really. Number one, to bring encouragement and to help the believers in Colossae confront the errors and false teachings that came out of a mixed message from both the Jews and the Greeks. There was a massive vulnerability in the church about what was going on. Lots of false teaching, lots of people pulling them from pillar to post. And I guess one of the things that I just add in at this stage concerning us as a church and us as a movement, New Frontiers, is I've been a part of New Frontiers now for some (coughs) years. And... um, I love the fact that we have this wonderful apostolic covering over us. We have men and women of wisdom and grace that can come in and support us if we've got any concerns or questions about things going on in the church. And I'm always very wary of finding churches that don't have that type of oversight. So I'm an advocate of big church movements, really, with great apostolic covering. And this is what we're part of here in Jubilee Church. Right, how is the letter relevant to us today. Three things here. Number one, we need to be equipped. 
2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's relevant to us because we need to be equipped. Number two, we need to be challenged. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we need to be equipped. We need to be challenged. Number three, we face constant danger the same as they did back in AD 62. Because in the church in Colossae, there was a misunderstanding as to who Jesus really was. And the Christians there had started to look to the, for the solutions for the big issues of life. So they turned to wisdom, human wisdom on one hand, or spiritual powers outside of Jesus for their answers. And we can face the same issues today. People in our culture often reject God and his words and look to human insight instead. So science becomes the answer, or therapy is the answer, or philosophy is the answer. Human wisdom outside of Jesus becomes the answer to their deepest needs. And in the last days, in 2 John, it says this, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Very strong words about people turning up physically on your doorstep and bringing a message that doesn't honour the works and the word of God. Deceivers and false teachers, beware. Get built into a Bible-believing church. Be wise in what you watch, read and confess with your lips. Christians sometimes look for human wisdom outside of Jesus. And we look at some of the teachings on maybe parenting, on marriage, on sex, on money, on work. And then we go, yeah, but that doesn't really apply to my world today. Things are different than they were then. But this Bible that we have is a handbook for life. I challenge anybody to find anything that isn't written in there about today's life. It's the handbook that we need to be absolutely sure of. He who hears my word and puts it into practice is like the man who, in Matthew 7, if you remember the wise and the foolish builders, the wise builder built his house on the rock and the winds and the storms came and blew and the house stood and the foolish builder built their house on the sand and the winds and the rain and the storm came and the house was washed away. We need to build people that build a house on the word. We need to fully embrace godly wisdom through reading and applying his word. So it's in this background of insecurity and uncertainty we find this letter from Paul arriving at the church in Colossae. And it starts to confront the false teachers who claim knowing Jesus alone is not enough. 
And they're saying, if you want to become strong Christians, then you need Jesus plus. Plus what? Well, they say Jesus plus religious rituals in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Jesus plus visions of angels, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Jesus plus self-denial, chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. But this is where Paul's stance is so brilliant. He says that if the Colossians truly understood the gospel, Jesus alone would make them strong on the inside. Not all those additions, Jesus alone. And so we find in verse 3 here, it starts with thanksgiving for what God has done. Our prayer meetings last week permeated with this. We, we set ourselves a goal in all the prayer meetings I was at. Let's not get into the, let's asking God for things, but let's just start first, first 10, 15 minutes just praising God for who he is and what he's done. And that was a bit of a discipline, certainly for myself, just to stand there without bringing all my requests to God. I just wanted to stand there and talk about his wonderful character, the way he loves us, the things he's done for us. We could have spent all evening doing that, but it was good to set the scene. And we find this letter from the Colossians doing exactly the same. So let me just read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And it also told us of your love in the Spirit. So verse 3 starts with this wonderful, we thank God we're already getting our perspective right. It's a massive key for us, it's a massive key for me. to When I start to praise God or when I start to think about God or the day that I'm just about to embark upon, I almost close my eyes and I see God the Father seated in the throne. And to his right side, Jesus Christ. And then I think about the Holy Spirit and that wonderful Trinity ministering on my behalf. And I, I just had this picture as I was preparing this of, of myself in the middle of this triangle. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and me in the centre. And that's how God would want us to be, right in the centre, us in the centre with this wonderful Trinity working around us. Because God, he's fully ascended, he's fully God. And the government is upon his shoulders. It wasn't a mistake what he did. He didn't think, oh, I've got to heaven now and I wish I'd done that or that. It was a beautifully completed work. And he sat down next to his father and he said, it is done. And the curtain in the temple was ripped in two. And we had this wonderful, wonderful access to our father. A godly perspective. Let's just go back to those false teachers for a moment. What are they saying? We find Paul is not at least concerned with their lies, but he majors on the grace of God. Now, he or you and I might want to say, well, let's go and tackle those false teachers. Let's go toe-to-toe with them. Let's, let's talk over some scripture with them. Let's sort of... But he didn't do that at all because he was in a different position. Because continuing in verse 3, he tells the church that whenever he prays for them, 
he gives thanks for them and he mentions five aspects which I believe are foundational. We're going to look at the first three of those this week. First of all, he talks about their faith in Jesus. He then talks about their love for the church. Then he talks about their hope in the gospel. Then he talks about the understanding of God's grace and for the fruit in which the Holy Spirit is bearing in their lives. It would have been all too easy for Paul, as it is for us, to major on the problems and disappointments of church life rather than on what God was doing. But Paul didn't make that mistake. Instead, his prayers were full of thankfulness because he trained himself to see God at work even in the midst of the most challenging situations. That wasn't Paul doing mind over matter. He wasn't sweeping the stuff under the carpets. But Paul applied faith and truth over circumstances of life. So what do you do when faced with difficult situations and decisions? When I used to work for Morrison's um, and the training team, we tendered out some work to another company and a guy turned up one day um, and we got talking about the business side of life and then for some reason he pulled up his shirt sleeve and he had a, he had a bangle on. Uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do bangle? I haven't seen one of those for years, to be quite honest. It was a rage at one time to wear those, I guess. And uh, as soon as I saw that, we stopped talking about business. We started talking about faith and his love for the church, etc. And I just said, I haven't seen one of those for years. You know, why do you wear that? And he said, well, he said, in my business life, and he was a, he was a leader of quite a big business, he said, in business life, I find myself making decisions every day in my home life, in my church life. I'm making decisions all the time and I don't want to make them by myself. I want to make them under the umbrella of what Jesus wants me to do. So I look down at my, my bracelet and I think, yeah, what would Jesus do in this situation? And it's a good thing to ask yourself, isn't it? Sometimes if you're going to make a big decision in life, whether you're moving house or job, you're going to get married, you're going to get engaged, what would Jesus do? What would he say in a situation such as this? So apply faith and truth over circumstances as Paul did. So I'm amazed at Paul. How did his faith stay so strong? If you remember where he's come from, it says here, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And now I'm imprisoned. Wow. I don't know how you would deal with circumstances such as that in your life. Um, I might have just said, I think this is not for me, guys, I'm, I'm out of here. But Paul's faith was strong through all of these things, and he saw God's hand through it. He never stopped praising God for all that he was doing. He kept coming back to the rock of his salvation, the unmovable one, the one who was and is and is to come. So, ask yourself this question this morning. Am I really a fruitful Christian and I believe in these verses we find three hallmarks of genuine Christianity according to Paul's letter. Now we know what a hallmark is. We sometimes see it on precious metals. We'll see it on platinum and gold and silver. It's the maker's stamp. It's the authenticity. It's the warranty. It's the provenance. It's the value. And I believe there's three of those hallmarks upon you and I as Christians today. The first one is faith. And we see that in verse, verses 3 to 4. Faith in Christ Jesus. This is not some irrational faith, but based on solid, 
reliable evidence, his death, his resurrection, the sightings of him, etc. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is, sh- is a sure and certain gift from God and it's the first fruit, the first hallmark. Our church should be a community of faithful believers having Jesus at the centre. The second hallmark is love. He points to their love for one another, a practical commitment to care and to serve one another regardless of cost and feelings. And the words of that wonderful prayer by Ignatius Loyola, to give and not to count the cost, to labour and to ask for no reward, save that of knowing that we do thy will. John 13:34 A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you that's the second hallmark the third hallmark is this wonderful hope hope is not blind desperate or hanging on by its fingernails it's clear cut and what god has absolutely guaranteed in his word this is biblical christian hope that allows us to push on in faith and in love hebrews 10:23 let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who's promised is faithful. God can't lie, and he has promised us things, and they're really going to happen. Some of them haven't happened yet, but they weren't intended to. So I have wonderful biblical Christian hope in eternal life, resurrection in an immortal, immortal physical body, new heavens and a new earth, No more sickness, no more death, no more pain. The wiping away of every tear. Seeing God face to face. Receiving eternal rewards. An eternal home with Jesus. That's part of our inheritance. God has absolutely promised these things and they're centred around the return of Jesus as God has promised. Christian hope is so important. Why? Because knowing what God has promised generates faith in us and motivates us to live a life of love. That is not the world's view. We've watered down the meaning of hope. Oh, I hope you feel better. Or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope I'll win the lottery. On the last one, I think the odds on the last one was one in 29 million of winning the lottery. So there's not much hope in that. But I I think if you had a sliding scale of non-important hope to certainty at the top, the world's word hope doesn't carry any meaning. The Christian version of it, and I bumped into a, um, when I was a young Christian, we had a guy in the church who said, actually, when he reads the word hope in the gospel, he translates that, the word certainty. Now, I don't think I can legitimately stand here and say that's the translation because it isn't, but it's right towards the heart. Our, our hope is not in something that's, that's, that's um, not fluid. It's, our hope is in the gospel. So hope in Titus means a strong and confident expectation of future reward. In modern terms, hope is akin to trust and a confident expectation. And according to the Holman Bible Dictionary, hope is a trustful expectation, the anticipation of a favourable outcome under God's guidance. But I wonder if you're thinking this. Although what you've said regarding hope of life after death is wonderful, what about the now?
Well, in the verse we read, in verse 5 there, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven obscures what is really being said. The singular word heaven is what misleads us. What the Greek text actually says is hope available to you in the heavens, and it's a plural approach. This term, the heavens, or as it appears in the letter to the Ephesians, the heavenlies, is a reference not just to heaven after death, but to the invisible spiritual kingdom that surrounds us on all sides right now. So we don't have to wait. Jesus himself said, let your hearts not be troubled, for I am with you. That is the hope that is awakened by this wonderful gospel. It is the good news right now, because whether you're facing in your mo- whatever you're facing in your moment of weakness, fear or hopelessness, Jesus is available to you right now. His strength can be imparted to you, his wisdom granted to you, to strengthen you and to make you stand. That is the hope of this gospel. That is what awakens faith and faith acts upon that hope. Our faith, therefore, must be based on hope, motivated by hope, loving through loving one another. And it's the third hallmark of genuine Christianity. So cut us in half like a stick of rock. Faith, hope and love should run through our veins. Our church, therefore, should be a community of Jesus-centred hope, looking for his return. Faith, love, hope, the three hallmarks of Christian living, all centred on Jesus. So let's go back for a second to that conversation that Paul and Epaphras are having together. And it maybe goes something like this. So Epaphras turns up in Rome or Ephesians to speak to Paul, and Paul's wants to know about the church in Colossae, so he's asking Epaphras how it's going. So tell me about the church, Epaphras. How's my church going? Is it full of faith? And Epaphras says, oh, it's so full of faith, Paul. The people are really on the front foot for God all the time. They just love the word. They're just on the front foot. Oh, that's great. That's great, Epaphras. But do the people love one another? Oh, I can't tell you, Paul. They, having sold everything, they have everything together. They share everything together. They're just outliving the gospel together. Oh, that's wonderful to hear, Epaphras. But does the church have a sense of genuine hope? Oh, they're hoping, all right. I've never met a group of people that hope more than they do. They're wonderfully steady in that area. So Paul's heart is put at some ease. And then Epaphras probably says, well, however, there are a few problems in the church. There's some false teachers and false teaching going around the edges. And Paul probably says, well, they'll never... There'll always be challenges in any church. And he probably says, well, Timothy and I can't visit, but we can always write a letter. And that's when we get this wonderful letter we've read already. And he says, we'll pray. He says here in verse 8, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And I was just just wondering about this wonderful apostle in prison, praying for this church who he's never visited and never will visit. And he's got this heart for the people, And it's so good when people intercede on our behalf. And I was just thinking, when I was preparing this, I was thinking of dear Charlotte. Now, we all know Charlotte and love Charlotte, but if you give Charlotte something to pray for, we know that Charlotte will pray for it, don't we? She's the most wonderful intercessor. And she came to Burton for the prayer meeting on Tuesday, and it was just such a privilege to have a lady of God in our midst like that. And at the end, we got her to pray for Burton. And just 
just the wonderful faith that she had for a place that she's probably never going to live in in her life. But it's caught something of what the church wants to do there. It's just wonderful to behold. So here's Paul interceding on the church's behalf. There's someone like Charlotte interceding on our behalf as a church very often. So this is the message of the first part of Colossians. We need to be a community marked out by faith, love and hope. All of it centred on Jesus. Faith is a gift of God. Faith in Jesus is the basis of our salvation. And that Jesus-centred faith leads on to love for Christian brothers and sisters because we are one in him. We belong to one another, not based on feelings, but on a decision, on loving words and actions, with Jesus as our great example, because he laid down his life for us. This hope is what motivates us to keep going, even in the really tough times. So ask yourself this morning this question, am I really a Christian? Ask yourself, do I have faith in Jesus? Do I believe he died and rose again? Have you professed Jesus as Lord of your life? Am I really a Christian? Do I have love for my brothers and sisters in the church? Ask yourself that question for a moment. I don't mean mushy feelings, but are you prepared to make a decision to show love to one another by your words and actions even when it is not deserved. That's mercy and that's love. And then a third question. Do you and I have that sense of hope? We should have a hope that goes far beyond this life and that is anchored in heaven. Jesus Christ has already died and has already been resurrected and has already gone through the heavens. And if we belong to Jesus and have been baptised into him, then we will share in a resurrection like his. Adam, I wonder if you can come back up with the band. I've got your thing here. Adam and I will do a handing over the stands now. So in closing, the Bible tells us he's coming back for us, his church, his bride, and that we will have eternal life, resurrection life, and a life with God. A Christ-centred faith gives us hope for the future that motivates us to keep going. If faith, hope, and love are not in place in your life, why don't you ask Jesus to be your saviour right now? You might have been coming to this church for years or you may be visiting today and maybe you've never truly given your life to Jesus. He is coming back one day and it's all centred on him. So will you put your faith in him today? These are the hallmarks of the Christian life. Faith, love and hope. And the greatest of these is love. So we're going to sing a song in a second but before you do we do that I just wonder if I can just ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads for a second please
there's three things I just felt God wanted to do with us today. And the first one is, basically, if you're not a Christian, if some of the things I've said to you today, or I've said today, just resonate with you, maybe you've come here as a visitor, or maybe you're not quite sure where you're at with God. I just wonder if there's anybody here that would want to make a commitment to Jesus today. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I wonder if there's people here today that have lost your hope. Either your hope in man or your hope in God. And I have this picture of this wonderful restoration going on. It was like a master craftsman who were putting together a smashed jar on the floor. And I want to introduce you to the most wonderful restorer of life, that is Jesus Christ. He puts back together in the most beautiful way things that have been destroyed, trodden on, trashed. He is the rebuilder, the restorer. He restores the years the locusts have eaten. So I wonder if you need your hope restored today. And thirdly, I wonder if there's people here that just want to have more of Jesus in the centre of your life. You've been doing and you've done your own thing for ages and you realise actually it should all be centred around Jesus. He's the one you've lost sight of. And so we're just going to make a just a quick request that if anybody feels that you fall into any of those three categories, number one, that you just want to make Jesus the Lord of your life today. Number two, you just want him to restore your hope. And number three, you've just lost a bit of sight of what's going on. Could you just raise your hand while all, every eye is closed and every head is bowed, please? Could you just raise your hands? Okay, so what we're going to do, I don't see any hands raised. It may be that you want to come down the front later, come down the front. We'd love to pray for you later on. That would be great. We're going to sing a last song. Um, and when Adam's played that through, when Adam's played that through, we're going to get some tea and coffee together and some something to eat. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah, just while John was talking, I just had a, a picture of um, a big cherry picture of, um, of a graveyard, and it was just really dark, and uh, just a sense of someone just kind of wandering around this graveyard, and um, I kind of felt the two things from that, um, and to what John's been talking about in in that loss of hope, just kind of like constantly feel like you're surrounded with with death, and um, yeah, just no hope really. And obviously, obviously, God's um, God, sorry, <laughs> John seemed talking about obviously God restores, but I also felt that it was relevant to someone here who's had a lot of loss within their family recently, a lot of grief, and uh, just just the sadness and the grief just kind of feel like you're not able to push through. Um, but again, God just wants to connect in with each one. So. Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.